Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 77, The Alexiad Part 2, Taking Control. We will continue to follow the story of the Alexiad. Alexios was still in the Anatolian Plateau when he was recalled to the capital by the current sitting emperor. You see, trouble was brewing in the capital. In the summer of 1077, Nicephorus Boutonneiates declared himself emperor and led an uprising against the current Roman emperor. Nicephorus Boutonneiates was already a very famous military commander in the empire, and we touched upon some of his famous deeds in an earlier episode. During the Pechenegh Wars, a Roman army was caught in the Balkans and surrounded by Pechenegh warriors. They circled the Romans and harassed them for eleven straight days, riding in all day, firing arrows at the army, then riding off at night. The Roman army was forced to march all the way home while under constant assault from the Pechenegs. When the assaults grew more hostile, the Romans formed a shield wall and huddled as the Pechenegs circled them on horseback killing all of their animals and any soldier whose flesh was exposed to the arrows. After 11 days, the Romans finally made it back to the capital. Well, the leader of that group was none other than Nicephorus Botaniates. But Botaniates wasn't the only man contending for the throne. Another man named Nicephorus Briennios was leading an army around the Balkans, claiming the title of emperor. He even had his army plunder the city of Constantinople, creating an uproar in the capital. Nicephorus Briennios used the city of Dyrrachium, a major Roman city on the coast of the Adriatic, as his capital and base of operations. While Nicephorus Briennios and his army ransacked the Balkans, Alexios was summoned from Anatolia and sent to deal with the rabble-rouser Briennios. Alexios was given all the armies of Anatolia, which were nearly exhausted. By this time, the Turks had completely overrun the Anatolic plain. And the army that remained was either lacking in soldiers, underfunded, undertrained, or simply Turkic mercenaries hired by the Romans. It was a pathetic comparison to the once great armies of Anatolia. Alexios was sent out of the gates of Constantinople into the province of Thrace. The enemy was out there with a seasoned army of war veterans that greatly outnumbered his ragtag army. Alexios's plan was simple. Do not engage the enemy head-on. Keep the enemy far enough away at all times so they never see just how pathetic Alexios's forces were. If Nicephorus Briennius ever saw the state of Alexios's army, he would order a full-scale attack and wipe them out. Brute force was not going to win this battle. 
It was going to take stealth and cunning. Anna Comnene describes the leaders of both armies in a similar manner. She starts off by saying that both commanders were equally brave and handsome in skill and strength. But then Anna goes on to describe Briennios in further detail. She describes him as standing a full cubit taller than the rest of his army. And when the army was formed up in full battle position, with their shields forming a wall of iron, their iron helmets shining and reflecting the sunlight as if it were the lightning bouncing off the soldiers' helmets, the screams and shouts of the enemy as they amped each other up for battle, and then Nikephorus Briennios rode out in front of his men, sitting on his horse like an iron giant, Taller than all of the other men, he rode out around like the god Ares, commanding fear and respect, sending ripples of fear down the spines of anyone who faced him in battle. Briennios had his army formed up in a long line for battle, but behind him were Turkic mercenaries, whose number one task in the battle was to circle around the enemy and pelt them with arrows from behind. This was an effective and deadly Roman army. But unfortunately, it was in the hands of a usurper. Alexios positioned his army on the far end of the field, but made an effort to hide a significant portion of his men in a ravine where the enemy could not see them. While they waited out of sight, Alexios went to the rest of his ragtag army and spoke to each of them individually. He spoke words of courage and bravery, but also told everyone that they had a plan and that they would prevail as long as they stuck to the plan. As Briennios advanced his army across the battlefield, they passed the ravine. As soon as the enemy's backs were facing the hidden soldiers within the ravine, they attacked. Alexios watched as his plan unfolded. The soldiers sprung from the ravine with speed and violence, hacked and slashed at the enemy army, and even managed to kill a significant amount of men. But the commander of this flank was a big man, and the brother of Nikephorus Briennios. He swung his sword at the soldier who attacked him, and cut him right down the middle. Whatever chaos the sneak attack had caused was quickly subdued, and the enemy quickly regained their formation and pushed back against Alexios' men. It seems as though that was Alexios' only secret move, and now that it was fully exhausted, there was nothing left to do but fight the army head-on. Alexios and his inferior army attacked the stronger army of Briennios. It was futile, but both sides fought with bravery. Now Alexios was no pushover. He was a mighty warrior, and anyone who came up to him was cut down. Alexios is described as swinging again and again, cutting down all those who got close to him. But the rest of the army started to fracture, and soon there were only pockets of strong soldiers fighting in the chaos of the battle. This is when Briennios unleashed his Turkic nomads.
A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Scythians, as Anna calls them, circled around Alexios' army and pelted them with arrows, causing mad hysteria within the ranks, which led to a full retreat. Alexios' army was defeated, and the men ran in every direction. But there were a few who were still fighting. These were the veterans, the seasoned fighters, and they were still wrecking havoc on Briennios' army. While the Scythians, or Turks, circled around and scattered the army, they saw an opportunity to plunder the enemy camp, and before long, they were riding away with loot and plunder. Alexios saw that all was lost, and he sought out his best men who were still fighting on the battlefield. He rallied them and ordered a suicide attack through the enemy ranks so they could assassinate the usurper and put an end to this civil war. But his men convinced him this was a futile plan, so they continued fighting the enemy on the front line. This battlefield was no longer a traditional battle. It was a scattered army with pockets of strong warriors fighting across many hectares of land. It was impossible to see from one end of the battle to the other. But during the chaos, Alexios saw the enemy leading the emperor's horse. Quick side note, this is where we are confused. I'm not trying to say that the Alexiad is confusing, but it took several times to read over this passage to determine exactly what Anna was trying to portray. It seems as though she is referring to the emperor's horse, but in all likelihood she is referring to the pretender, Nicephorus Briennios, who was dressed like the emperor and had purple robes and rode a horse with gold plates and purple dyed saddlecloth. Alexios and his personal comrade saw the horse being led by a steward from the stables and was most likely being brought to Nicephorus Briennios. But Alexios lowered the visor on his helmet and made a mad dash. The small group of men cut through the enemy and broke through the ranks and slaughtered the men escorting the imperial horse. And once they captured the beast, they led it off the battlefield. And while they all huddled in the bushes, away from the eyes of the enemy, Alexios found an individual to mount the imperial horse. He told him he had to ride out into the battlefield and tell everyone in the enemy army that Nicephorus Briennios was dead. Alexios and his men watched as their guy rode out into the battlefield and joined the enemy soldiers. The man ran up and down the battlefield, shouting the same words over and over again. Briennios is dead! This sent confusion throughout both sides of the army. The men from Alexios' side, who were already retreating, stopped and turned around, while the men on the enemy's side, who were 
fighting viciously, also stopped and turned around. This event almost stopped the entire battle right there in its tracks. The enemy retreated and regrouped around the hill, and to their surprise, they had a lot of men still ready to fight. And standing right there in the middle was Nekephorus Briennios. So what the hell was going on? Once they realized their commander was still alive, and that their forces were actually far superior to Alexios, they prepared to turn back and continue the fight. While there was a lull in the fighting, a Turkic mercenary group came up to Alexios and asked him where the enemy had retreated to. They climbed a hill where they saw the enemy scattered and unorganized, trying to figure out how to re-enter this battle. While Briennios talked to his soldiers and the men gathered around to figure out what they were going to do next, a band of Turkic riders circled around the enemy and pelted them with arrows. It took a heavy toll as every arrow found its mark and hundreds of men and horses dropped to the ground, dying and screaming. But again, Briennios' army was superior and it didn't take long for them to get back into formation. The final charge was ordered and the rebel and his army marched down to destroy Alexios. When they made it to Alexios, his men were lined up and ready for the final showdown. But Alexios' ranks were thinner, and they were tired. The fighting had been going on for so long now. As Berenios' army funneled in to deal the final blow to Alexios, a last-ditch effort was made by Alexios. He had his army divided into three parts. One part was to form up a battle line, led by Alexios himself, while the two other parts were to hide in the ditches and ravines on the side of the battlefield. While Briennios and his army came to meet Alexios, they saw a tiny shell of an army, bravely standing to fight. As the army attacked, they stretched out, and once they were fully concentrated on fighting Alexios, the two flanks, surprise attacked. What resulted was a complete ambush and mass slaughter. The fighting turned to chaos as Briennios' men were struck down from both sides. And once the entire army turned to fight their attackers on the sides, Alexios charged from the front. The numerically superior army of Briennios turned and ran. And as they ran, a group of Turks sought out Briennios himself. The first Turk charged and tried to plunge a spear deep into Briennios' side. But the commander turned and swung and cut the hand right off the Turk, sending his hand and spear tumbling onto the battlefield. The second Turk leaped onto the back of Briennius' horse and grabbed onto the back of the enemy commander. As Briennius turned and stabbed again and again, missing with every thrust, he eventually lost his seat on his horse and was brought down. Shortly after... Briennios was brought into the custody of Alexios, where he was officially taken as prisoner. Like so many of Alexios's adversaries, once he was in captivity, he was treated fairly and humanely. However, the battle wasn't over yet, as the second-in-command took over the rebellion and fled. But he was surrounded in the city of Thessalonica, and after many threats, the people of the city simply opened the gates and allowed Alexios's men to enter and capture the new leader of the rebel army. 
That man was swiftly dragged outside and his eyes were put out. Now this kind of goes against the previous statement of Alexios treating his captives with compassion. So, either Alexios had no trouble blinding the men as long as they weren't of noble blood, or this act happened when Alexios wasn't there to stop it. Alexios, as well as his brother Isaac, were honored by the emperor, and were even invited into the royal palace and ate at the same table as the emperor himself. Alexios and Isaac were heroes, and their successes on the battlefield prompted the sitting emperor to grant them titles and honors and gifts. These men were treated so well that others in the imperial court started to get jealous. You see, the imperial court was filled with conniving, sniveling men who wanted to gain their own power and prestige by climbing the ladder with favors and tidbits of useful information. The most dangerous men in the palace were often the weakest, for they made their moves by spreading words in secret and in public. Words that would poison the reputation of Alexios and Isaac. These words spread throughout the court and soon put Alexios and Isaac in grave danger. They were both living in the imperial palace and they were both related to a past emperor. And so the rumor was spread that they were trying to kill the sitting emperor and take the throne for themselves. This put a target on the backs of Alexios and Isaac. If they did nothing, it would only be a matter of time before guards came marching in and blinded both brothers, even though they had done nothing but serve and fight for their emperor. It was Isaac who made the first move to protect the two brothers. In the Alexiad, Anna states that the two brothers looked out for each other at every move and one move by a brother was meant to protect the other, to the point that Isaac was always looking out for Alexios, and Alexios was always looking out for Isaac. When Isaac entered the women's quarters in the imperial palace, he opened dialogue with the sitting empress. Isaac was a charmer and a handsome man who was good with his words. He befriended the empress and told her of the greatness of his brother Alexios and even went as far as saying that she should adopt Alexios as her son because he would serve her well, loyally, and faithfully. And surprisingly, she listened to the words of Isaac. The current emperor was too old to have a son of his own, and the empress had agreed to adopt Alexios as her son. And every time the two brothers entered the women's chambers to talk with the empress, they raised the eyebrows of those watching from the dark corners of the palace. The plotters and schemers saw the moves being made by the two brothers and their schemes kicked into overdrive. It got so dangerous for the two brothers that their time was almost up. They had to make a move or flee before they were apprehended and their eyes burnt out. The two brothers decided that the best way to move forward was to talk honestly to the Empress. They told her that despite being adopted by the Empress, their lives were in danger in the palace, 
and they were going to have to flee before anything fell upon them. This move was also a scheme on behalf of the Komnenoi, as they were planting seeds within the sitting empress. They were setting up their next move as a move of defense, while also stating that their intentions were to leave with their lives. Empress Maria has a fascinating story upon itself, because she was not from Constantinople. She was of Georgian descent. Her marriage to the emperor was a political marriage to strengthen the alliance between Georgia and Byzantium. She married the emperor and had a son named Constantine. But due to another uprising, her husband was forced out of the palace and a new emperor came to the throne. This is the current emperor Nikephoros Botaneiates. However, before Botaneiates was able to take the throne, his current wife passed away, and he entered the palace a widower and an elder without an heir. He was forced to find a new wife, and soon. This led many single women to flock to the palace But because of the need for legitimacy, he chose to marry the wife of the previous emperor, hence Maria, the current empress. Maria was alone in the women's quarters. Her entire family was in Georgia, and she had no one left to support her in the palace. And she also had a son. Constantine, from the previous emperor. Despite being the son of a former emperor and the son of a current empress, Constantine was not given the title of Caesar. And as the current emperor grew more and more elderly, the looming threat of a coup sent Maria into a deep depression. This is the state she was in when young Alexios and Isaac came to her in the women's quarters. They saw that she was depressed, and they asked her what was wrong. And they also confessed their fears to her, and pronounced that they were also in danger, and might need to flee in order to save their lives. And in the same breath, she expressed her concerns to the two brothers, She feared that a new man would seize the throne, and then she would be an outcast, and her son Constantine would be blinded or even executed to rid the threat of a usurper. They were both in a very similar and desperate state. Yet the two brothers did not try and make any plots or secret moves. They sincerely offered to pledge their services to the Empress, and any time she thought her life or the life of her son were in any danger, they would come to her aid. In return, they asked for only one thing. If she were to overhear any plots made against them, she would inform them thusly, so that they might escape the palace before being captured. She happily agreed, and with that, the two brothers secured the confidence of the empress, 
And she, in turn, felt like there were at least some forces in the palace looking to protect her son, Constantine. With Aeneer inside the palace, feeding the brothers all the schemes being plotted against them, they quickly realized they were in grave danger. From now on, they would only visit the palace individually, Isaac on one day and Alexios on the next. This way, if they were going to be apprehended, at least one brother would be caught and the other would have a chance to get away and then organize the rescue of the other. It was a very stressful time for the brothers, but one day, while Isaac was inside the palace, Alexios was summoned to meet the emperor. Ooh, now they're both in there. Uh-huh. The emperor was having dinner, and Isaac and Alexios were both placed at the table, on opposite sides of each other. Sitting at the table were the servants and schemers plotting to destroy the brothers. And at this moment, they thought they were done for. But at the dinner, they were tipped off by one of the servants. They were called upon because another city in Anatolia had fallen to the Turks. Knowing that the emperor was going to announce the fall of the city at dinner, the two brothers had time to whisper to each other and come up with a suitable response. When the emperor stood up and announced the city was under siege, the Comneneo brothers responded by pledging their services and that they would make the Turks pay for their attacks. Because of their agreement with the Empress, she tipped off the brothers to the latest plot. When the Emperor was out of the palace, the guards were to summon the two brothers, Isaac and Alexios. In the cover of darkness, they would be charged with trumped-up charges, and their eyes were to be burnt out before anyone could step in to intervene. Time was running out for the Komnenoi brothers, and they were going to have to act now or fall to the blindings that awaited them. Alexios invited his army from the west into Constantinople and used the excuse of fighting a campaign in Anatolia for their presence in the capital. It was a highly suspicious move. No one trusted a military general who brought his entire army through the gates of the city especially in these dark days. It reeked of rebellion. But Alexios assured the guards that this wasn't the entire army and was, in fact, just the heads of the army who were here on business to plan out the campaign in the east. The pieces of the chessboard were slowly being moved into place from both sides. The schemers were ready to seize Alexios and his brother and have them both blinded. While Alexios and Isaac were moving their soldiers into the capital. Moves were about to be made. Alexios then went to his commanders and spoke to them individually. He told them all about the schemers in the court who were planning on blinding him and his brother. He told them their lives were in danger. And if they did not act right now, they would be gruesomely tortured. The commanders responded to Alexios 
with a very sincere message. If you go tomorrow and make your move against the throne and seize power, I will back you up and pledge my sword to you. But if you wait even one more day, I will go to the emperor myself and rat you out. This was a similar response from his other commanders. It was a dangerous thing to plot against the emperor, especially inside the capital. If Alexios was going to make his move, he had to make it at dawn. And so the plan was put into motion. That night, the mother of Isaac and Alexios, along with her sisters, sisters-in-law, and any women related to them at all, fled to the Hagia Sophia, where they sought sanctuary. Meanwhile, Alexios, Isaac, and their military fled the city and began rallying soldiers to their cause. They had many friends within the Imperial Army, and more and more men flocked to their banner. While the Kalmanoi were out gathering their forces and building up strength, word made it to both the sitting emperor and the Kalmanoi brothers that another man had seized upon the chaos and declared himself emperor. So now there were two usurpers claiming to be the emperor, while the real emperor sat alone in his palace listening to reports of the enemies outside the gates growing stronger and getting closer. At this time, Emperor Nikephorus Potinites was an old man, and the task at hand seemed too much for him to handle. He whispered thoughts of abdicating the throne entirely. He was too old to deal with this, and that attitude frightened the hell out of those who supported him. The loyal thing to do was to stand by your emperor, but how could anyone do that when the emperor himself thought of giving up? The only thing keeping the emperor alive and safe was the stone walls that surrounded him. While Alexios and his army camped outside of the city, the daunting task of having to storm the city walls became apparent. It was an impossible task. No one could breach these walls. The only way to get inside would be for someone on the inside to open the gates for them. There were many towers with many gates protecting the city of Constantinople, but each was guarded by a different group of soldiers. Some were guarded by the loyal immortals, who would never betray the emperor. Another tower was guarded by the Varangian guard. They were also fiercely loyal to the emperor. Alexios chose to approach the tower guarded by a military detachment that would most likely hear out the wishes of Alexios. There's always somebody there, eh? When you get to the Crusades, how they get into... Uh, Antioch? I think it was Antioch, yeah. Oh my God. It worked. Because that night, as Alexios and his army camped in front of the guard tower, the gates opened up. The entire army stormed through the gates. And although they were forbidden from murdering anyone within the city, it did not stop Alexios' men from looting and robbing anyone they came across. The army fanned out and went up and down every street, and very soon the entire city of Constantinople was overrun. 
The emperor looked down for the palace and heard the cries of the citizens as soldiers roamed the city. At this moment, Emperor Nicephorus Botanetes knew the jig was up. There was no way he was going to come out of this on top, so he sent a message to Alexios. The message read, I am a lonely man, with neither son, nor brother, nor relative. If it is agreeable to you, you can become my adopted son. For my part, I will take away none of the privileges granted by you to each of your comrades in arms. Nor shall I share in any way your authority as emperor, but will merely enjoy with you the title, the acclamation, the right to wear the purple sandals, and to live quietly in the palace. The government of the empire will rest entirely on your shoulders. Alexios's answer was quite simple. These terms would have been most expedient before the city was captured. As he is an old man now, let him vacate the throne and look to his own safety. Alexios and Isaac had seized the palace, and with it, the imperial title. Emperor Nikephoros Botaneiates was to be banished to an island, where he was to live out his days, living in rags as a monk. While he was marched down the steps to the boat, one of his friends asked him if he was worried about his change of circumstances. The ex-emperor replied, Abstinence from meat is the only thing that worries me. The other matters cause little concern. Alexios took the throne for himself and became the next sitting emperor. While his brother Isaac supported him in every way, their mother too stayed in the palace and helped out her two sons. The only question was, what was going to happen to the ex-empress Maria and her son Constantine? Many tried to convince Alexios to banish her from the palace. Some said that he should marry her, and others said that she should be sent back to Georgia. But Alexios and Isaac were having none of it, for they owed their lives to Maria, and they had made an arrangement before. In the Alexiad, Anna describes the ex-empress as the most beautiful woman the world had ever seen. She was tall and slender and had all the right curves. Her body and face were perfectly symmetrical. Her skin was white as snow and her cheeks were rosy. Maria ended up staying in the palace and Anna Comnene got to know her very well. And many of the stories and details that Anna put into the Alexiad came from the mouth of the ex-empress who witnessed these events unfold from the palace. The entire time she spoke of the ordeal, she always expressed the same thing. That day, and the days that followed, she lived in total fear. Fear for her child son. Constantine Ducas was only seven years old at the time. And before that, when his father was emperor, he was used as a bargaining chip. He was betrothed to the daughter of Robert Giscard. 
and then that deal was canceled by the next emperor. But when Alexios became emperor, he honored his mother and proclaimed Constantine Dukas as the junior emperor. And just like that, Alexios kept his word to the ex-empress, Maria. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.